Shop Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. It's winter. It's cold. That's where you need your windows to step their game up and keep your energy efficiency on point where you're staying warm, keeping the heat high and the energy bills low. And your windows are vital in this fight. Pella's got the top of the line windows to do just that. You can holler at them. Your local Pella Omaha and Lincoln experts, or you can go online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. And the Nick Bob podcast is powered by Runza. And one of the great things about it being winter is the tradition unlike any other, and that is Temperature Tuesdays. It is back. It's that time of the year. Every single Tuesday in January and February, the 6 a.m. temperature at the coldest Runza location is the price you'll pay for an original Runza sandwich when you buy a medium fry and medium drink. Oh, baby. Temperature Tuesdays are back. Take advantage of it. Runza makes it all better. All right. Welcome back into the Nick Ba podcast. And uh, I'm taping this. It is almost 1130 at night on uh, Thursday, February 17th. And it's maybe a little risky that I'm, I'm doing this because I've had a couple of glasses of wine. I am celebrating today. I'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, but the Creighton game just uh, just wrapped up. Creighton beat DePaul on the road in Chicago in Wintrust Arena, 71-59. to I got some thoughts on Adrian Martinez. I got some other thoughts on on, uh, on Fred Hoiberg and his staff I want to get into. But with, with Creighton, you, you know – they're they're so shorthanded right now. You know, they basically got a seven man rotation, really a six man rotation. Keyshawn Fizel only played five minutes in in the game uh, here this evening, and you know with the injury to Arthur Kaluma, they just they, they don't have a deep bench. I mean, they, they John Christopoulos is done for the year. Sharif Mitchell with his groin is, is is on the shelf, so they they are in a very interesting situation where they're having to navigate. A difficult bubblicious time with just with with basically six seven guys right now, uh, but but Creighton finds a way to win. Ryan Hawkins goes for the full forty minutes. Ryan Nemhard goes the full forty minutes. Both those guys were outstanding. By the way, if anybody watched that game or if you'll see the highlight, Ryan Nemhard dunked on Javon Freeman Liberty. I had no idea that Ryan Nemhard had it like that, and maybe I, I'm not I'm not so sure it's not the most shocking dunk I've witnessed this season in recent memory just because it's one thing when something you know an amazing dunk happens but it's by someone you expect that they can you know dunk in traffic like I wasn't even totally sure if Ryan Nemhard could dunk and dude went up in traffic over Javon Freeman Liberty and punched it on him it was it was probably the play of the game uh but a couple of things with Creighton, you know, I just Ryan Hawkins has to be one of the most underappreciated stud players, great players in the Big East Conference. You know, it, you know, right now Creighton's sitting at third in in the Big East standings, and if if Creighton, let's say Creighton holds serve and and they finish third, they finish behind Nova and Providence, and they finish third, you would think a third place finish would warrant some sort of all conference selection with one of your players, and. It'd be interesting to see how that all shakes out. And just because Ryan Hawkins, I just don't think he gets the run that he deserves. Listen, I'm not saying that he is Colin Gillespie or anything like that. He's he's most certainly not. 
But man, he he has it, it's a it's an interesting window into what our expectation level is on the front end. He's gone from like, hey, this D two player ain't bad, huh? To like, this guy's a really good Big East player. Period. Right? Like, and I get that you always have to mention his journey because it's it's a part of the story that makes it interesting. The fact that he is a Division two transfer, but. It's almost like when a third-string quarterback gets in and they complete a pass, you're like, how about this guy, Johnny Backup? Look at that, right? But if the starter does it, you expect it. Like, it's all the lens at which you view certain guys through, and I think for a lot of people, they view Ryan Hawkins through the Division II lens, and so everything's like, how about this guy, right? Not saying that people don't take him serious, but I just don't know if, if he has ascended into the level of, like, this is one of the best players in the Big East right now. Like, this guy is... Is is really really good. He had twenty five points, eleven rebounds uh, against DePaul, and he just does everything right. He's so steady, he's so solid, and and his team needs him right now. I mean, you you look at what he's done the last. You know, he had thirty against uh, Georgetown on the road. Yeah, like he he he's. I, I'm not saying that he's a first team All Conference guy, but like if Creighton finishes third, somebody from Creighton's team's got to get voted into the first or second team All Conference. Like I think it's either him or Kalkbrenner, uh, and I think there's a there's a great argument to be made for Kalkbrenner, although it's going to be hard for him to surpass Adama Sinogo and Nate Watson and maybe even a Jack Nunji in his pursuit of of trying to get the nod into one of those first. Or, or second team spots, which, you know, I'm not expecting anybody from Creighton to be first team all conference. I'm just saying, I'm one of those guys that's to the victor go the spoils. Like, if you finish top three in the Big East, like, somebody's got to get some, got to get some flowers and get some love. Because at this point, it's a, I mean, Ryan Nemhart is a lock for freshman of the year in, in the Big East conference, but just it's, it's interesting to kind of think about that where, like, hey, man, Creighton's trending towards a third place finish. You wonder, how some of those all-conference things could shake out, and maybe a guy like Ryan Hawkins could go from, look at this Division II guy hanging in there in the Big East to, like, could this dude get, like, a second-team all-conference selection if he keeps on playing at this level and Creighton finishes in the top four, finishes third? Maybe. Maybe. But the, the, he is he has been just so good for Creighton all year. And he was great against DePaul and against Georgetown over the weekend. But it's interesting how much, you know, Creighton's bubble situation is – because you would think like, hey, a team that is the, – the Big East Conference is considered by a lot of people one of the best conferences in the country. I mean, if you want to – you could throw the Big 12, the Big 10. You, you, the SEC's having a pretty darn good year. But it's in that it's, – it's one of the two or three or four best conferences uh, in the country. And you would think a third-place finish in and of itself, if you just view it like that, whoever finishes third in the Big East is 1,000% in, is going to make the NSA tournament. But Creighton is is very much on the bubble, and it feels like they're just like hanging on to the bubble, right? Like, I, I've talked about it on the podcast, but with this four-game stretch of Butler, two games against Georgetown and DePaul, it was just a massive game of Jenga for Creighton in their bubble hopes of, hey, you cannot mess up. And, and get off the NCAA tournament conversation. But Creighton has won all those games, but it still feels like they're squarely on the bubble. And for whatever reason, whether it's Ken Palm or the net, a lot of these metrics don't really like Creighton very much. Like, it's interesting to see, you know, a team like Iowa heading into tonight. Now, they lost to Michigan tonight, but they were they were in the – I think they had like a, a net ranking of, of inside the top 30. But they don't have a quad one win. 
but yet Creighton has a handful of quad one wins and they're they're out they're outside of the top fifty. Like it's just it's a weird it's a it's a weird way that the net arrives at things. And I think the reality is that when you look at Creighton's non conference performance, it's it's not great. Because a part of what the net takes into consideration is is not just who you beat, but how you beat them, how much you controlled them. And if you really look at Creighton's season in the non-con, they really only blew out one team. You could, I guess you could say two. I, they kind of blew out Brown when they were in the uh, they were in the the tournament over Thanksgiving. But really, North Dakota State is the only team that Creighton really put it on. Other than that, they had to grind to beat Pine Bluff. They had to grind to beat Kennesaw State. They had to grind to beat Southern Illinois. They had to grind to beat SYU Edwardsville. And they lose to Colorado State on the buzzer, although we've seen Colorado State's a, you know, a, a very viable NCAA tournament team that's, that's going to be a problem for somebody in March. But I think that's what it is. Then they, you know, they got the Arizona State loss that's, that's not a good loss at home. You do have the BYU win on the neutral floor in South Dakota, but I just think I think it's the non-con performance that is holding this team back right now. The the non-con not dominating the teams you're supposed to dominate. No real outside of BYU, no real feather in the cap non-conference win. So I, I think that's probably what you know what it is. Uh, but it's but it's interesting. Because life on the bubble is certainly stressful, and you try to ask yourself, you know, why? Why is this team? You know, because I had someone, I had someone, I was texting somebody tonight, and they were like, "Why is Creighton on the bubble? The third in the Big East." I'm like, "Well, you got to look at their non-con and blah blah blah." So we'll see. But Creighton took care of business again. I talked about it last week. Like we probably don't lend enough credence and love and talk towards winning the games you're supposed to win and taking care of business when you're supposed to take care of business. And Creighton has done that in this four-game stretch. They beat Butler, they beat Georgetown twice, and they beat DePaul. Just games you couldn't, you could not afford to, to lose when you're hanging on, uh, living that bubblicious life. So now uh, now things will get will get challenging here as – down the stretch, you got some you got some tough games. You got Marquette coming to Omaha. Then you're at St. John's, which they're playing really good. They beat Xavier uh, earlier this week. Then you got Providence on the road at the Dunkin' Donuts Center. And then you got UConn and Seton Hall, two games that all have on Fox uh, to wrap up the season. So it's 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 going to get tough down the stretch. Creighton took care of business when they needed to, uh, and it was it was a game that they they couldn't afford to drop, and they didn't tonight. So it was good to see. The Nick Bob Podcast is powered by Runza and the cold winter months. It's officially here. And as a warm weather lover myself, the cold can kind of bum me out. But the one thing that always puts a huge smile on my face when it gets cold, temperature Tuesdays at Runza. Yes, it's that time of the year. Temperature Tuesdays are back at Runza, where every Tuesday in January and February, the 6 a.m. temperature at the coldest Runza location is the price you'll pay for an original Runza sandwich when you buy a medium fry and medium drink. Think about it. An original Runza sandwich might be 10 cents, a dime, might be a nickel, might be a quarter. Heck, might even be one penny. Just one penny. So make sure you take advantage of this incredible deal every single Tuesday at Runza where the temp at 6 a.m. in Runza land is the price you pay for an original Runza sandwich and you buy a medium fry and a medium drink. It's back, baby. Temperature Tuesdays. Runza makes it all better. Next topic I want to get into was... So Adrian Martinez 
uh, on his Athletes Unfiltered podcast on on Herd App Media, by the way. Shouts out to Herd App Media, producers of my podcast. Uh, Adrian Martinez opened up. I'm sure by now you've you've li- you've either listened to it if you haven't you should or you've seen some of the real juicy quotes with stories from either the Lincoln Journal Star or Omaha World Herald. Whatever. But Martinez opened up for the first time about basically everything this past season. And again, I urge everyone to go listen. It's on the Athletes Unfiltered podcast. Go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. But he he basically goes through almost the entire season, game to game, moment to moment. And then he obviously goes into at the end of the season the, the at the end of the season the decision to transfer. And in in listening the podcast is about an hour long. I had a handful of takeaways from listening to Martinez on on his podcast. The the first one that was a big theme throughout the podcast that he talked about, not a theme, but a, a thing that they talked about at length was the the kind of the behind the scenes story of Martinez dealing with his broken jaw. And it's pretty remarkable to listen to Martinez describe everything that went into the hit at Michigan State that broke his jaw, going back and getting an x-ray, then coming back in the game, and then the decision to play. And like it's pretty amazing. And I've always said, I've always said that the biggest disconnect between fans and media and players is injuries and playing through pain. Like just just the raw understanding of of all that players go through with their bodies and pain just to get out onto the field. I mean, Adrian Martinez played the final six games with a broken jaw. Like, say that out loud. It is it is crazy to hear him describe the whole or- ordeal. And sometimes you have to you have to say those things out loud and really think about it. You know, and you think about Martinez and and how he you know he's out there laying it on the line, playing through a broken jaw, having to he he was gr- blending up steaks because he couldn't chew to like eat steak through like like an oatmeal consistency. It's I mean this dude it's it's incredible. But think about think about laying it on the line, playing through a broken jaw. You're eating a a steak smoothie. And then you go out there and you lose and people criticize your play and blame you for losing. Like, it had to have been so tempting for Martinez to scream, I'm playing with a fucking broken jaw. Like, I can't even eat and chew, right? Like, it had to have been tempting for him to be like, guys, geez, I mean, sorry I fumbled at the end of the Michigan game. I got a broken jaw, okay? And listen, he owns the fact. Martinez does a good job of owning the fact that, hey, when you decide to play, you play. No excuses. But still, like, I guess for me, we knew about the broken jaw, right? We This isn't like news. But to hear his first-hand account of on the specifics of it, it just renews my respect and admiration for the guy. Like, there's toughness. And then there's the toughness that it takes to play quarterback in the Big Ten with a freaking broken jaw with Aiden Hutchinson screaming down your neck. So major, major salute to Martinez being a warrior through that. And by the way, Martinez, one of the most up, kind of emotionally emotional he got in the podcast was he was upset about how the news got out about his broken jaw without him being able to be the one to tell the tell it to everyone First, he wanted to be able to tell everybody in his family and every because they kind of kind of keep it a secret for competitive purposes and different things throughout the course of the season. 
so he was a little upset about it. You know, it, it got out during the the telecast of the Ohio State game, and it sounds like Gus Johnson and Joel Klatt and the Fox crew kind of dropped the ball on that by divulging it on air. And then that led to Scott Frost talking about it in the press conference, and then Martinez went and met with the media. And so I don't know. I mean, I get that Martinez is upset about that. Um, I also think, you know, Frost was in an interesting spot when he met with the media after that Ohio State game because he was basically kind of arguing and pleading his case to keep his job and trying to get everyone to understand the obstacles of this season for him, most notably his starting quarterback having a broken jaw for six straight games. So I I don't know. Like, I get that my, I get Adrian Martinez's frustration to a certain extent, but I think as time passes, he'll realize that wasn't necessarily a huge deal in terms of how it got out, but you could tell it really didn't sit well with Martinez that he didn't he didn't get to be the one to kind of share that that news at the time. Second thing that uh, second takeaway, just listening to the to the podcast with Adrian on Athletes Unfiltered, man, Adrian Martinez is incredibly self aware. There's a self awareness about him and and to him that is that is impressive right like this is a guy that was very in tune with the narratives and the discussion surrounding him he had a he had a great sense of of what the chatter was around the team the games the coaches and also himself and I've always felt like self-awareness is a good quality to possess as long as it doesn't border on being paranoid or self-absorbed or you know, egotistical, um, as long as it doesn't border on being consumed by the gossip and talk surrounding you, which I didn't think he was, I think being self-aware and understanding kind of what the narratives are is is probably a good thing. But I just, I found, as I'm listening to him go through the season, I just found his self-awareness on a variety of levels striking in a good way. Like, I've always, I think it's Colin Coward said this a, a, 10 years ago and it stuck with me. It's like, you know, when you when you listen to people, you meet people, you get to know people, you observe people, people either kind of, you kind of file them into two categories. Guys, people that either get it or they don't get it. And I know that's a, but it's, a, you either get it or you don't get it. And a part of getting it to me is just having some self-awareness. And Martinez to me is one of those guys that I absolutely file in the get it category because he's self-aware. And along those lines, the other takeaway I had was, man, I tell you, Adrian Martinez, this is a this is a mature guy that doesn't make any excuses. Here's a guy that took a lot of shots over the course of four years. He took a lot of heat. He took a lot of criticism. And he didn't ever blame anyone for how things played out. He always took ownership. He never made excuses. He was always the one that the first person to say, we got to be better. I got to be better. That's on me. Which is, and the reason I bring that up is because it's it's easy in a post-game press conference when you're standing in front of Sam McEwen and Steve Sipple and Dirk Chatlin and Tom Chattel and Parker Gabriel and Sean Callahan. It's easy to stand in front of them right after a game and snap into that into into the post-game press conference cliche media mode. Right? With oh yeah, we played we we fought hard, gave it 110%. Just got to do better. Like, it's easy in the moment of the game because that's how you're kind of conditioned as an athlete 
to snap into that post-game presser cliche media mode. But to, but to do this in a podcast setting, months removed from these games and these moments and, and the turmoil and, and, and the four years and, and all those things, as you're walking out the door of Lincoln and heading to Manhattan, Kansas, you're no longer a Husker. To, to do this podcast and not fall victim to the blame game and pointing fingers at anyone else, I think it's classy and impressive. Like, he could have easily been like, guys, I had a freaking broken jaw. I hurt my ankle really bad the week of the Minnesota game. My special teams were terrible, lost us the Michigan State game. I'm not a, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He could have done all that. You never know how certain guys are. If you you sit there and imagine getting criticized for four straight years at various points, and then you get a chance to hold the mic and tell your side of the story, like, it's got to be tempting to be like, well, this, 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 and this. I know you guys think this about me, but actually, this is why this happened. Like, he, he's a guy that always took ownership, no excuses. I just thought that was striking and pretty cool. The next, the last two things with this was just kind of, this is kind of a big, broad, overarching one. Like, I think Adrian Martinez confirmed that we were right in how we were viewing everything from afar. Like sometimes you never know. There, there's the way you view something from the outside looking in, and that that may be accurate and it may be wildly inaccurate. And I think the entire Adrian Martinez situation, and even the entire season, the way he described it, but in particular the Adrian Martinez situation, kind of confirmed what we thought from the outside looking in was what it what it actually was in terms of why he left Nebraska, why he decided to transfer, and the fact that he's leaving in good standing with Scott Frost and and feelings about Nebraska, right? Like, he said he needed a change. He loved Nebraska. He loved Frost. Frost loves him. He thought it would be best for both parties involved. He understands how there's some certain fans that are like, good, thank God this guy's out of here, and there are certain fans that are like, oh, man, we're going to really miss that guy. Like, this is a this he he confirmed kind of like all of the things that we all thought. I think we all kind of said, "Hey, this is just kind of a relationship over the course of 4 years that sometimes people just grow apart and sometimes it's best in everybody's it's in everybody's best interest to just go in a different direction." And Adrian Martinez in his own words kind of confirmed that. We sat for for months, I sat with Bo numerous times discussing it, talking about it. Wondering what is Adrian Martinez going to do? How is he viewing this? All that stuff. And to me, it's interesting and always kind of reassuring to hear the guy that was at the center of these conversations, him basically confirm that it's pretty much exactly kind of what everyone thought it was. There wasn't anything else at play. And then the last big takeaway to me was just, I couldn't help but after I listened to the pod, think about Logan Smothers from the standpoint of it's kind of, it's kind of amazing that Logan Smothers never got a shot until Adrian was 1,000% out and done for the season with that shoulder injury after the Wisconsin game. Like, it's kind of amazing to think that the guy in front of you, he isn't winning. Like, you're not winning games. He hasn't won games in the past. He's got a broken jaw. One game, he had a horribly bad sprained ankle to the point where they had to alter a lot of the game plan. And even with the broken jaw, they were trying to potentially kind of alter how much they were going to run Martinez. Like, think of all those things. Not winning, broken jaw, hurt ankle, altering the game plan. 
and you, and you still can't get in. Like it's just interesting, considering that Logan Smothers. Like I didn't think he looked awful against Iowa. He certainly didn't look better than Adrian Martinez to me. But it's just interesting to me that given the entirety of the Adrian Martinez situation, a variety of levels, that Smothers couldn't find a way to like get in there one time. And whether that's a reflection of blind loyalty and and all those sorts of things with Frost towards Martinez, or if it's a window into Logan Smothers wasn't even close to being ready to, to take the job, I don't know. Again, I thought he looked he didn't look awful against Iowa, but that's also just one game. That's also just one game. So there you go. Again, it's Athletes Unfiltered. Go check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone should go listen. And, you know, even though Martinez is a Kansas State Wildcat, like just an impressive guy and easy to root for, likable. I thought he came across well, like he always does. So it's interesting and and was cool to finally hear from him, his perspective on the tumultuous season at Nebraska. The Dick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple-pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. Next thing I want to talk about, uh, I, mean, I got to make sure, because I, I asked a question to, to Dirk Chatlin on my last podcast. You should go check it out. It's on the podcast feed. One of my first questions to to Dirk was kind of about Fred Hoiberg and his staff. And I kind of, I, I imagine some people listen to that and, and maybe kind of raise their eyebrow and kind of wanted me to elaborate a little bit, but like when, it, so when you think about Fred, I was thinking about this over, over the weekend. I was actually thinking about it. My, I was driving home from Iowa. I called the game at Iowa city when Iowa blasted Nebraska had a four and a half hour drive, a lot of wind, you know, windshield time to think. And, you know, a big part of, we, we make a big deal out of your assistant coaches and your coordinators and all those things in football. And we don't make as big a deal about your coaching stat, your assistant coaches in basketball, where your assistant coaches matter in basketball. And where they matter is in complementing the head coach's strengths and weaknesses, mainly like the weaknesses. And if, if I were to describe Fred Hoiberg, the coach, I would describe him like this. Really good offensive coach. Very offensive-minded. He's very focused on that end of the floor. The offensive end of the floor is where his expertise lies. Very cool, calm demeanor. He's, he's not one to yell and scream. He's not, he's not a big bark and bite his players kind of a guy almost maybe to a point of being non-confrontational. And then the last one would be that he 
doesn't love recruiting and or want to spend a ton of time on the recruiting trail. That's how I, based on my observations, conversations with people who have known Fred, worked with Fred, all this stuff. Interview, I'll describe him. Great offensive mind. Expertise lies on the offensive end of the floor. Very calm and cool. Not a yeller and screamer. Doesn't really love to, to really live on the recruiting trail. Okay, so that, that's kind of describing Hoiberg. And then when you examine the, the three assistant coaches, you have Matt Abdelmassey, who is a 1,000% recruiter. 24-7, 365, the guy's a recruiter, recruiter, recruiter. Not a ton of on-court coaching. His main thought is recruiting. Then you have Armand Gates. He's a holdover from Tim Miles' uh, staff. I, I'd say more so known as a recruiter. Um, seems to be a player's coach. Very engaging, fun guy. Very, very engaging, fun guy. And then there's Nate Linzer guy that Fred bought on this year. His You look at his bio, his most recent coaching history is in the NBA. He was an assistant coach with the Chicago Bulls. He was also the G League head coach of the, of the Chicago Bulls G League team. On his bio, it lists that he was an offensive guy focused on player development on that end of the floor. So I think you guys know where I'm going with this. So his three assistants... You got the main recruiters, Abdul Massey and Gates. I mean, Nate Linzer can't be overly connected. He hasn't really done it a ton. He's been mainly in the NBA or he was young as a he was hasn't really recruited a ton. And then you have the offensive guys in Nate Linzer and, and Fred Hoiberg. So I think while each individual guy, just looking at them individually, Abdul Massey, Armand Gates, Nate Linzer. They're, they're good coaches, good guys, and they have expertise in specific areas. To me, none of them really complement Fred Hoiberg outside of the recruiting am- angle of it. And for me, as I just kind of thought about it, like, I, I just wonder how good the blend of coaches really is. Again, let me make this crystal clear. Like, that isn't to say that each guy isn't good. I'm not saying that Armand Gates isn't a good coach. I'm not saying that late Nate Lenzer isn't a good coach. I'm not saying that Matt Abdelmassey is not a good coach. But it's about fit. I like French fries, but you can't have fries with a, with a side of fries and then another side of fries. Like, that's not a meal. You have to, to blend, you have to have a blend of different things. That just on the surface, it feels like this staff maybe lacks that a little bit. To me, this staff lacks, in my opinion, a defensive guy, a grizzled veteran who has been in college coaching for a long time and is kind of a hard ass. Because if you think about a staff, an assistant coaching staff is a lot like a basketball team. Like, you got to have guys that complement one another. I love Dennis Rodman. Five Dennis Rodmans isn't winning anything. Like, you need a blend of complementary parts. And all I'm saying, I was just thinking about, like, I'm not sure this staff complements each other and in particular complements Hoiberg overly well. 
Like I was looking at you look at at Michigan. Look at Michigan, another another NBA guy, and Jawan Howard as a as an NBA guy. He's got Phil Martelli on his staff. You know who Phil Martelli is? Phil Martelli is a longtime St. Joe's head coach. He's been in college for forever. He was the head coach with when St. Joe's was a one seed. Like they, they he has been in college forever. He's a tough Philly guy. So he's got that going for him. Like, I know Greg McDermott a handful of years ago really felt like, you know, there wasn't – it just was all offense in his in his program. It was just offense, offense, offense. And when Darren, when Darren DeVries took the Drake job, I think he really felt like I need to go where I am – Greg McDermott's an offensive-minded guy. I need to find somebody whose expertise lies on the defensive end of the floor. And that's where Paul Lusk came in. And now Paul Lusk has since then head to, headed to Purdue. And so he went out and found another guy in Ryan Miller. So with Nebraska, like I just look at this coaching staff. And again, I want to make it crystal clear for anyone that's listening. Like, I'm not saying these individual coaches aren't good. Just like I'm not saying that French fries aren't good. I'm not saying Dennis Rodman's not good. What I'm saying is you gotta, things got to complement the entirety of the situation. I don't know how well... This staff complements each other. And, you know, I think what what Fred Hoiberg needs is a defensive-minded college coaching veteran. And what's crazy is he had that with Doc Sadler. But Doc Sadler's been pushed out of the, the one of the three assistant spots. He isn't one of the three full-time assistants. And so that greatly handicaps how much he can be hands-on coaching. It's against the rules for Doc to be intimately involved, installing game plans, all this stuff. Like, he can't do it. So, you know, whether it's Doc Sadler or someone else, I think Fred Hoiberg, you know, if he's back in Nebraska, he's got to find a defensive guy that ideally knows the Big Ten. Like, he doesn't need another offensive mind. In my opinion, you don't need another player development guy. What he needs is a defensive-minded veteran, hard-ass coach. Because if Fred Hoiberg isn't going to bark and bite the players, then he's got to have one of his assistants be that guy. NBA coaching and college basketball coaching are way different. And sometimes, sometimes I feel like Fred views this Nebraska situation too much through an NBA lens. Like, like it's too much of an NBA situation. The NBA is largely about talent. College basketball, well, yes, you have to have talent, but college basketball is more about intangibles than it is tangibles. College basketball, you you win with culture and toughness and holding players accountable and all those intangible things. To me, this staff, while I like each individual guy, this is again, this isn't about ripping these individual coaches. To me, it's more about how they all fit together and maybe most importantly, how they complement Fred Hoiberg. When you look at his strengths and then you maybe look at where he's needs a little help, needs someone to fill in that gap. To me, they all kind of either have, you know, to me, Gates and Abdomassi, a little bit of redundant skill sets being recruiter. Lenzer and Fred, kind of redundant NBA guys, offensive-oriented, player development, like, 
It was just a thought I had as I was driving home from that Iowa game. Again, for the 50th time, just because, you know, I don't know if the coaching staff lists or I like the, this isn't a shot at these individual guys. It's about how they all fit and complement Fred. I'll wrap it up with this. I told you at the at the top that it's maybe a little dangerous. I've had a I've had a, a couple glasses of wine because uh, I'm taping this again. It's February seventeenth, and it's a day that I've dubbed Perspective Day. So six years ago, I had a massive health scare. Some of you have heard this. Some of you maybe haven't, but you know it started with feeling dizzy all the time, um, and finally. After going to the doctors a whole bunch and doing a whole bunch of tests and different things, the doctors found that I had two strokes in my cerebellum, which is the part of the brain that controls balance. And in the midst of diagnosing the strokes, they discovered a tumor in my thymus gland, which is right at the top of the sternum. So six years ago today, I had my chest cracked open. And my surgeon, by the way, shout out to Rudy Lackner, my surgeon, they removed the tumor. Chest cracked open, removed the tumor. Massive surgery. And, you know, the tumor gets, sets off, gets uh, sent off to pathology, a.k.a. cancer results. And luckily, the tumor was benign and it, it, it wasn't cancer. And, man, I got to tell you, the, the days waiting on the cancer results were brutal. But those days were also incredibly eye-opening. Like as I was kind of sitting in, in, in the hospital, you're waiting, you're waiting. I, got, I actually got discharged and was able to go home and I still hadn't gotten the results and waiting and waiting. That time of, of waiting on the cancer results was eye-opening in the sense of what really matters. And all that matters is your health and the health of your loved ones, period. Life has a way of, life has a way of, of having you get tripped up and sucked into the little tiny crap that just doesn't really matter at all. And trying to maintain perspective is in some ways one of the major keys to life. Like, the better you maintain perspective, the better off you'll be in general. And then on top of that, you know, focus on, on love over everything else. Like, who do you love? What do you love to do? Who do you love? What do you love to do? And try as hard as you can to build your life around that, those two things. Who do you love? What do you love to do? Soak up and spend time with the people you love and do what you really love to do because at any freaking minute, it can be gone. And at any minute, things can change. And for me, one minute, I'm, I'm sitting in a coffee shop in Omaha. The next minute, I'm super dizzy. I can kind of barely see. The, the, the next weeks, I'm, I'm getting tests. The, then I, the doctor tells me I have two strokes, my cerebellum, and oh, by the way, you got a tumor. And you, all of a sudden, boom, in an instant, everything, everything changed. Any minute, it can change. And for me, as I sat there in, in the hospital on February 17th, 
you know, with my ribs having just been cracked open, I got a huge eight-inch incision right along my, in the middle of my chest. I'm still held together together by wire. I'm sitting there waiting on cancer results. I I just had my first baby. Mava was born four weeks before I had my surgery. So I mean, I've just laid eyes on my daughter, and now I'm off to surgery. Things get things get pretty clear on what matters and what is important and who is important when when all those things are going on. And listen, I hate to sound preachy because believe me, I don't have all the answers and I think perspective is a daily battle. That's a, that's how I always describe it. perspective is a daily battle. But I always try to find that perspective from that time in my life. And it's weird because in some ways I think dwelling on the past isn't good. But if dwelling on a past moment helps you maximize in the current moment, do it. I was lucky back in February of 2016. In the grand scheme, I came out okay on the other side of this thing. And so many people aren't as lucky as I was. And I always try to keep that perspective as well. So there are layers to this thing. I just know that for at least one day, February 17th, I smile the whole day and really try to tap back into the perspective of what really matters. Your health and the people you love. A Huda Media Production.